This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. One of Canada's most well-known and celebrated artists outside the group of seven. We know the group of seven kind of stand alone as far as celebrated Canadian artists. But besides them, one of the men, one of the artists who really stands high on the pedestal of Canadian artists is a guy by the name of Ken Danby. I'm sure you've heard of Ken Danby. I am positive that you've seen some of his work. Specifically, if no other piece, you've probably seen his painting at the crease. Painting of a low crouching goalie in front of the net. It is kind of a, it's almost a symbol of Canadiana, really. But there are many, many other things that he's done that you've probably seen or not even realized was Ken Danby's work. Well, right now at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, there is an exhibit of his works called Beyond the Crease. A number of his paintings are there and you could go and see his stuff. It is a real slice of Canadian art culture. Shelly Falconer is the Art Gallery of Hamilton president and CEO. She joins me now. Shelly, thanks for doing this. Hey, hi. So based on the name of the exhibition, Beyond the Crease, does that mean At the Crease is not in the gallery? No, At the Crease is here. In fact, this is a retrospective, so um, we wanted, of course, to have At the Crease. It's certainly his best-known painting. But we also wanted to make the point that Ken was, um, he did make, uh, create several works around sports, but he did lots of other things, hence the title, Beyond the Crease. Sure, so but, it's, the is here. but it's certainly, yeah, it's almost hard to have a Ken Danby exhibit without it. Yeah, and it's hard because several of these works, and it's not the only famous work, there's also Lacing Up, there's a couple of others, they're all with private collectors. So Mm. um, putting this together and getting all these works, you know, it took quite some time to put it together. Some of them do come from public collections too, but a lot of them are sitting in private homes. So very difficult to access and pull together. It's the first time the scope of work has been pulled together. Yeah, it's, I mean, I suppose it would be a lot easier. I mentioned the group of seven. It would be a lot easier because of the McMichael Gallery if they were to release it to do it. You have to do a lot more work now to find them all and bring them uh, in. It was a lot of sleuthing to find where the works were. And the, the family helped us. But, you know, even they said early on, well, you're never going to find those early works. No one knows where they are. And it did take quite a bit of work. It was a real, um, I was one of the curators working on the show, but it was a real team effort with the staff here at the Art Gallery. How do you find where they are? I mean, when, when they get sold, is there always a, a way to track who's, who they've gone Not to? Not necessarily. It's literally sleuthing. It's, it's little do people know that we do that as curators. <laughs> it's part of the job. So how? What do you do? You literally have to sit and look things up and try to find evidence of where it could be. Often when you come to the exhibition, you'll see private collections. Sometimes people have allowed their names to be used. So that's a problem, too, because if it says private collection in a book, then you can't find it. So just a lot of tracking down, a lot of reading, a lot of research, reading everything you can find on them, going through all of the, the fonts and the papers and the archives of Ken's art dealer, Walter Mose. Sometimes um, invoices, receipts will lead you to the buyers. But because he started selling works in the 60s, Sometimes there was just a handshake. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I bet they've probably been sold more than once or twice in the meantime. Well, that's the other pro- There are a few things we couldn't find. But the book, we have published a, a catalog, a book. That does include everything. And we did end up, um, in the end, with, with more than 70 works for the exhibition. So we're quite pleased. Other than the group of seven, and I keep mentioning them, but I mean, it's because it's kind of obvious when we're talking about Canadian artists. Yeah. Other than the group of seven, what Canadian painter would be higher than him on the pecking order of of artists that the average 
person in the public, not necessarily the diehard art fans, but the average person would know? Who would be more well-known than Ken Danby? And and, and just back to Danby for a minute, I was curious to see if my children um, would know who Ken Danby was. And a a few of his friends uh, were over at the house, and they they didn't know who Ken Danby was because they're younger, but when I showed the picture of the goalie, right away they said, oh, we know that painting. It's so iconic. <laughs> and, you know, I was trying to understand it because I didn't grow up in Ontario. I grew up in Quebec. And that Kandambi wasn't an artist that I knew well. Um, but and it was, people explained to me, especially here in Ontario and with all the Tim Hortons across the country, we didn't have Tim Hortons in Quebec, that, you know, the Tim Hortons painting, for example, was reproduced in every, and hanging in every single Tim Hortons store. And that's the one for people who don't know it. It's, it's three Tim Horton, really. It's Tim Hortons in his Maple Leaf uniform and his Buffalo Sabres uniform. And what was the other one? I can't even remember now. Pittsburgh, I guess. Pittsburgh. And, the, and he has the broken jaw, which is actually um, uh, what uh, Ron Joyce's son, Stephen, explained to me, was that the night that um, he was killed, he had a broken jaw. And you see that in one of the images. The Does Tim that Horton, mean that it was painted shortly before he died? It was actually done after. Ron okay. uh, always commissioned the work. Ron and Tim Horton, of course, were very, very close friends. And he was with Ron that night. Um, they'd been together before the accident happened. So um, the work may- means a great deal to the Joyce family. But what I love watching, and I've taken pictures, the amount of people flocking to that painting as well as at the crease. So there's a lot of love for that painting in Hamilton. Well, especially in this town, of course, yeah. there would be. Okay, so on your website, there is a line when it's explaining the gallery and explaining the exhibit. There's a line that says, Ken Danby is an artist who has been celebrated and overlooked at different times in his career. How, how was he overlooked? Well, you know, he's one of those artists, as my co-curator on this project, Ihor Holubitsky from McMaster, said, you know, it's not good to be too successful. <laughs> you know, the avant-garde doesn't like that. And it's one of the reasons I did want to do, you know, I didn't really grow up with Ken Danby. I um, got to know the work better when I met the family. And then I, 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 I discovered the manuscript in his studio, which for me was like gold because it's Ken's words, unpublished. No one had ever seen it before. And that, of course, is part of the book, explaining all these paintings and where they come from. And it, what happened to him is he was so successful that when he had these shows in the 60s and the 70s, there were lineups down the street. They would sell out. And for a lot of artists, when I've spoken to artists who were around back in those days when Yorkville was you know, full of hippies and... People were angry. I mean, artists who worked very hard, you know, mid-career senior artists, along comes this young, good-looking guy (laughs) who starts to paint, and he's a huge success. Well, you know... So the art establishment is always... They've they've never been too kind to Ken Danby, and he was often dismissed as being, you know, too commercial to this. But one of the reasons we wanted to do the show was to actually re-examine him. Because the more we started to look at paintings that most people had never seen before, the more we began to realize there was something, you know, really solid here. Well, Shelley, you work in the art world, so I, you know, I hope what I'm going to say isn't um, isn't going to be terribly insulting. But mm-hmm. there are there is a segment of the art world that can be at times a little snooty um, and a little elitist at times. And what Ken Danby did, his he was. He's described as a realist. I would almost say a hyper-realist because his painting, the technique, and the they, they almost, a lot of his paintings look like photographs. Well, I'm going to send you the catalog because Ehor's written the most wonderful essay 
on realism, and it's probably the freshest thing written about realism in a long time, and it's called Realism and the Real. You would love it because he's saying some of the things you were saying, but uh, we'll definitely have to send you a, a catalog. But it's, it's for, for some people, and again, I'm not trying to paint, pardon the pun, paint with a broad brush here, but for some people in the art world, it, it sounds much deeper and much more intelligent to be able to describe an abstract and what the artist was trying to say through his work with an abstract, whereas... There's not a lot of doubt most of the time what Ken Danby was trying to say with his works. He was painting real-life things. He was, and whenever an artist who's a good artist um, and a real artist, and I'm going to use that term and I'm using it intentionally, um, does what he did, you know, a photograph simply depicts something. When an artist depicts something, he brings to it something completely different that you can't catch in a photograph. And I think we can say unequivocally that Ken Danby does that. Yes, he's technically proficient, there's no question, but we think he's very much an artist. And I think he's one of those artists who was overlooked by the establishment, and for some good reasons. He, you know, he studied at OCAD in the 60s, and he, at the time, abstract, abstract expressionism was what every young artist was practicing. Well, he made a decision when it was not a cool or trendy thing to do after he saw an Andrew Wise exhibition in Buffalo to be, you know, to only um, work in a sort of realist um, um, method. And that, uh, I think, also marginalized him. It simply wasn't cool to be a realist. Did he ever do any other style? Yes, he did. Before he saw the Wise exhibition, he painted the way everyone was painting back then, which was, you know, uh, it was abstract work. And are any of those examples in the, in the exhibit? No, we decided not to include. Um, I don't think Ken was a very good abstract artist. <laughs> okay. And we wanted to show Ken. Um, we, wanted to sh- we wanted to put best foot forward, one to really show the strong work. And we didn't think it was relevant. One of the things I think that if people go to this that would be very interesting is because his work, and again, you, you just explained that they're not photographs, even though they sometimes look almost like that. But to, to I'm guessing, have you taken a look up very, very close to, to take a look at the brushstrokes? Because it almost seems like there wouldn't be brushstrokes. That's how clean so are, many of them. that's why, you know, seeing a reproduction of painting is one thing. Seeing it in the flesh so you can see the texture. He worked in egg tempera, which is a very old 15th century method that allowed him to apply the paint in such a way, um, with such control, that, you know, when you look at a work, for example, Pencho, which has raindrops on the raincoat, it is, it is incredible that he was able to do that. And in fact, the collector that has the work is so in love with that work, you know, he didn't want to lend it because he didn't want to part with it. And then he insisted that we make sure that it was covered or glazed because he said, people are not going to believe those raindrops are, were painted. They're going to want to try and touch them. So I want you to cover the painting. And we did, of course. Can you see over the years, is there a vast change in how he paints, or is it pretty similar over the years? No, it really, and that's what's lovely about a retrospective. You get to really see how an artist evolved. We have that early period, which I call the Wyeth period, where he begins to experiment with realism um, in a very typical, and I don't know if you know the artist Andrew Wyeth, but it's these rural images. And it's lovely because they're all southwestern Ontario. And I know that, you know, one of the inspirations for me was an old friend some years ago who's an accountant picked up a book and she said, you know, I'm not really into art, Shelley, but there's one artist I love and she showed me off her coffee table a book of Ken Danby's. And I was really sort of perturbed and I said, why Ken Danby? And she opened these images of these rural, you know, landscapes in southwestern Ontario and she's from Hamilton. And she said, and she showed me one of this old miller and she said, you see that man, you see this landscape? That's my family. That's where I come from. 
Yeah. Who, who's coming to this exhibit? It's been going on for a little while. Who are the kind of people who are showing up for this? Everybody. That's what's lovely. It's, it's, um, everyone is coming. And it's nice to see kids here. And I think it's nice to see kids introduced to Ken Danby, a whole new generation. I think baby boomers certainly grew up with Ken Danby, but their kids don't necessarily know who Ken Danby is. As one um, old friend said to me, when he went to his pediatrician's office in, um, in Toronto, the, at the crease was in the, um, in the clinic, and whenever they got their shots, him and his brothers were always told to stare into the goalie's eyes. So he said, for him, painting, <laughs> you know, I think people have an emotional connection to Ken Danby. Sure. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's not the only thing, but at the crease or lacing up, which again, for those who can't picture it, it's a hockey player, basically from the pant bottoms down with his red and white socks extended over the ice and his skates onto the ice. It's, um... I'm correct, right? No, no, sorry, that's not the one. That's no, the no, this is the one. He's tying up his literally, lace. Yeah, and as, as but, lots of hockey players who played hockey have said to me, some of the staff here, they said, he's got it so right. Like, I remember, like, how your fingers feel. Yes, yep, and yep. He's, it's there when he's lacing up the skates. Yeah, they are red and white socks, though, right? Yes. Okay, I had a, 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 that picture and or that painting and a picture that someone took confused in my head, so I'm glad you clarified. You do have, um, for anyone who's really interested in this, because the exhibit is on for a while, but you do have a lecture on with some experts this Thursday, correct? Yeah, in fact, um, Dr. Ihor Holubitsky, who's one of the curators on the exhibition, he will be speaking this Thursday evening at the gallery, and he's a really interesting speaker, and, um, and uh, he's fun, and he always gives a sort of different perspective. So I, I do encourage you to uh, to come if you can. And while I have you, I'll let you uh, make a pitch because I think you have a couple other really good exhibitions that are going on simultaneously. One with spectator photographers and uh, Hamilton Spectator Show. That's another show that I just my heart like just it's some of the most wonderful, powerful images of photojournalism I've ever seen, and uh, it's all you know from around here. So it's terrific stuff. Really strong work. Yeah, we're waiting for the exhibit on uh, spectator sports writing to be put up in the art gallery. That's uh, that's what we're holding <laughs> yeah, out for. I can't wait for that either. <laughs> uh, and the other one, though, that you have, I think, still going on is um, about uh, the Imagine, was it called Imagined Hamilton? Uh, yes, it's Unbuilt Hamilton. Unbuilt Hamilton. So the, the projects that never got built. Yeah, we've actually talked about both of those exhibits here on the show, but if you're, they're still going on, so Lots you can do the Ken Danby, and you can do the spectator photos, and you can do the Unbuilt Hamilton. And last folio, Yuri Dolk's photographs uh, uh, from Slovakia are absolutely stunning. But you know what? You asked me who would be the other artist, and I've been thinking and thinking while I'm talking to you, because I, I like multitasking, but who would be the other artist other than the group of seven and Ken Danby? And? I think it's Kenozhewek, Ashavak, the Inuit artist, and that stamp that was made with the bird. I think everyone knows that image. That could be, you know, the only other one around here that comes to mind, and I, I'm probably getting myself way in trouble because it's very, I think it, it probably a lot of people will get, will blanch when I say this, but in this area, certainly in Niagara-on-the-Lake, it's, um, what is her name who, I can't even think now, the... Um, the painter from Niagara on the Lake who does all the buildings down there in the apothecaries. No, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, again, I'll think of that name in just okay. a minute. But someone's, I think it's yeah, someone's screaming at the radio now that they know. There's, they're yelling, Radley, get that right. They'll but call you, they'll call you. Yeah, they will for sure. Listen, uh, Shelly, really appreciate it. Shelly Falconer, the Art Gallery of Hamilton president and CEO. If you, if you like Canadian art, if you remember Ken Danby, uh, he passed away in 2007, but if you remember his work, if you want to go see it, that gal, that exhibit is going on at the gallery till January... 22nd. 22nd. Um, Shelley, really appreciate the time tonight. Thank right. you. Thank you. Good night. That is um, 
again, if you if you don't know at the crease, you probably do know at the crease. Uh, I, I have a hard time believing that you haven't seen uh, that painting before. That I mean, it's just so um, so well known. And the, the, the name that I was going to come up with, and again, for serious artists, I think they may go a little bonkers at me. Uh, I don't know if they will or not, but the, the one I was thinking from Niagara on the Lake, who was very popular down there, Trisha Romance for many people of the, the storefronts and the buildings down there, um, in some ways similar to what Ken Danby does, in some ways. Interesting stuff. If you like art, if you like Canadian art, if you like Tim Hortons, not the coffee, the art, uh, go to the Art Gallery of Hamilton sometime between now and pretty much the end of January and catch the, the exhibit of... Ken Danby. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Just a wild guess, but that song may be sung tonight in Montreal. May. I mean, they sing it for the Canadians games, which has never actually made any sense to me that they are singing Spanish cheers at a Montreal Canadiens game, I get the French thing. I'm not sure about the Spanish thing, but soccer, I mean, okay, soccer, it makes a little more sense. And tonight at the Big O in Montreal, there will be 60,000 people. There's 60,000 people expected to be at the Big O Olympic Stadium for a soccer game between Toronto and Montreal. And this makes me wonder, and the reason we're going to bring on my next guest, we, as I said before the break, we always in this country seem to be waiting for the moment when soccer is really going to take the next step, when soccer is going to really gain the kind of traction among the broader public. I mean, soccer is widely played. We know that. And we know that soccer has lots of fans who like watching Premier League or Bundesliga or some other league back in the old country. But we keep waiting for soccer here to really become one of the major, major spectator sports. And we're wondering if this is now going to be one of those moments. John McGrain is a member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame, the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, the Ontario Hall of... I mean, he's in so many halls of fame, they've pretty much stopped inducting him anywhere because they've run out of halls of fame. Uh, John McGrain joins me now. John, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. And by the way, when you get inducted into halls of fame, that tells people that you're really old. Well, really old and also that, um, you know... A long, long time ago, you did something pretty well. well you know, that's probably true, but uh, today you're just an afterthought, and I'm okay with it. Well, but once upon a time, and I mean, you know, we all um, we all eventually retire from our sports careers. But man, you were a star in this game, and I'm wondering from a guy who played in the NASL, who played with a lot of great players, who played at a time in North America when it looked like we were going to have that kind of giant boost all of a sudden. It looked like it was ready to take off and then it blipped. Are you surprised at the numbers that we're talking about for the game tonight? No, not not in the least. Uh, uh, you know, if people to ask, you know, you, you brought a good point saying, I, I wonder if now is the time for soccer to actually arrive. Uh, I think with the success of TSC and uh, Montreal tonight, is is letting people know that from a, a viewing standpoint that everybody and their grandmother is going to watch this game, but from a player standpoint, uh, the the CSA has put out numbers that show that soccer is more popular than ever before. It's the number one sport in Canada. 
Uh, and I think the emergence of the, the new Canadian Premier League, which will take place in the next 16, 18 months, uh, will reinforce the fact that it will be here to stay. And we know, John, with what you just said, we know the numbers of kids, especially, who are participating in soccer. Now, I'll be honest, and I think you would probably agree, there is a percentage of those kids who are playing because they love the game and because they can't get enough. There's another percentage who are playing because uh, two hours of soccer twice a week is great for babysitting when you're a parent and you want to dump your kid to get some exercise. So there's a split, but there is huge numbers. There are, whatever the reason, there are huge numbers of kids playing the game. The question has always been, how do we translate those kids and their activity in the game to being bums in seats to watch games being played here on Canadian soil? And I'm wondering if you see this game tonight as, you know, obviously you're right. Everyone's going to be watching. A lot of people are going to be tuning in, but is this a one-off? Can we, can this be replicated time and again, or is this just a confluence of great events that, that brings everyone to watch this one? I think to be honest with you, this is a game uh, where it will let people know that Canadians are ready to support good soccer. Okay. They really are. Uh, In the real sense of things, uh, most people want to see good Canadian talent playing alongside good foreign talent, and that's not happening in the MLS right now. But as far as supporting what you've got, which is what we have in TFC and, and Montreal, uh, that they will support it massively. In fact, I believe that they're adding new seating to uh, BMO Field for the return match of this game tonight. So it might be in excess of 40,000 people, uh, which is a heck of a lot more than what they're going to have for the Grey Cup. Absolutely. And, and and they don't have to give tickets away. Exactly. There have been hints of this, though, John, over the last three or four decades. I can remember back in the 80s when the Toronto Blizzard played an exhibition game against Juventus and they filled Exhibition Stadium. And you thought, oh, here we go. This is going to be the thing that gets it going. And then... Uh, you know, along the way, every four or five years, there's another event. Uh, just a couple of years ago here at Tim Hortons Field, we had the pre-World Cup game with the women's national team, the Canadian women's team that sold that place out. What makes this one different from all those ones that we thought were going to be the things, the catalyst, and never really became that? I think the popularity of the game in general has has increased with mass media. Uh, I think we've, we've all fallen in love with the English Premier League and and Every country's uh, leagues are being played in some channel on television. Uh, the one thing that is missing as far as taking it to the next level is the fact that Canadian players right now don't see a pathway to a career uh, in professional soccer in Canada. And once we're able to overcome that and make that a, a viable a viable option, then not only we have more kids looking at the possibility of you know, playing at a higher level, but you're also going to... Uh, you, you're, you're basically going to create a sense of community so that when we go to a Hamilton game where the professional team is playing, two or three of the players on the field might be from the city of Hamilton who grew up in Mount Hamilton and Salt Fleet and, and so forth. So I believe that we're, we're, at, we're on the cusp of doing something really special and what this really does is it lets the media know that by putting 60,000 people in uh, Olympic Stadium uh, is, is, is letting the media know that we are ready for the next stage in the development of soccer in Canada, which is a full-fledged Canadian league. 
If you were to play Montreal Canadiens, one of those uh, winter classic games, and you put it in the big O, you would have 60,000 people in there, no problem, whether the Canadiens were doing well like they are now or whether they were in last place like they were a couple of years ago. Agreed. But with these two soccer teams, with you're talking about putting 40 in BMO Field, if TFC were to go back to where it was for the last, what, eight years where it didn't make the playoffs and it was a sad sack team, right? would things return to where they were? I mean, does, in other words, for us to have a soccer team that people are going to go out and cheer for now, is it, though, still dependent on success? Well, I think that that's usually the, you know, that's usually the standard with any professional league. You know, if, uh, with the exception of, of Toronto, where you've got the Raptors and the Leafs, that have, and the Leafs in particular haven't won anything since 67, but yet still packed the place out. Those are anomalies. You know, I think the Buffalo Bills is a good example. Uh, up until maybe two, three years ago when they were playing absolutely horrible football, you know, the games would be blacked out here because it wasn't sold out. So to a degree that may happen, but I think if you do it correctly, I think if you have that sense of, uh, of community and, and let people know that the, the team may be owned by a Bob Young, but it really belongs to the fans, I think if you do it correctly and, and involve the community, the soccer community uh, in general, uh, and make them feel that there is an opportunity for kids growing up to to actually represent their city and eventually go in and represent their country. Uh, I think if you're able to do that, you will you will see us overcome uh, the situation where only winners will will pack out a stadium. Uh, I think this is definitely the turning point with respect to soccer in Canada. And lastly, uh, I believe that the, the Canadian Soccer Association is going to make a formal bid fairly soon to host the 2026 uh, World Cup. Yes. And that will generate even more, because don't forget, MLS exists because of the 1996 legacy that was left behind from their World Cup. What about our national team? Now, I don't want to get into bashing the national team. Heaven knows everyone else has done that, and we all know how they have struggled over the years. For for this to become, again, for this to really be one of those moments in the broader picture, do we need our national, our men's team? Because our women's team is very good. Do we need our men's team to pick it up? Do we do we need them to become something? Is it all part of the package, I guess, is what I'm saying. If we have 60,000 people in Montreal, and then 40,000 in Toronto, and then the next time we really think about soccer for a lot of people might be an international men's game and we see they lose 8-1, to one, that kind of takes the air out of the tires. Do we need them to be better to keep this thing rolling? Let, let's be clear about one thing when we talk about the Canadian national team. MLS in Canada right now, and we're watching a game tonight, where we're hoping that our Americans are better than Montreal's Americans. <laughs> that's okay? true. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's the, that's the reality. That takes nothing away from the entertainment factor of the game tonight because uh, our Americans are basically representing Toronto. Okay? But when you talk about the future and you talk about Canada making it to the next level in, you know, in World Cup soccer, we have to produce our own players. We have to have them playing at a high level. We have to give them, we have to give them time to mature, make mistakes, get better. We have to have a, uh, an academy system that teaches kids from 12 years old up uh, about how to play in a Canadian style. So what you've got right now as a Canadian team where you may have about 14 decent players, maybe, maybe eight, depends on how you look at the whole thing, 
you'll only become successful when people are competing for positions. So you have to produce 20 to 30, like it was in the days that I played in the North American Soccer League. When we went to training camp, there was 32 players that were very close to each other as far as ability was concerned and played with some fairly good teams, played with some really, really good players. So in that way, that when you fought for your position, you, you were on the spot every game that you played for your country. And if you weren't good enough, the big hook come out and somebody else went in your place. That doesn't exist right now. But with the evolution of a Canadian league where you have a quota system of two or three or four Canadians playing at all times, then you're going to be able to do that. And then, and only then, will you look at a quality World Cup side that can compete, uh, let's say, in the top 40 in the world, which is what you're looking at in the next 10 years. John, just before I let you go, uh, one of the things that was talked about a lot in the last day or two since the players have all arrived and trained at the Big O is the quality of the field itself. The turf is not, they're saying the turf is really rough. And when I say rough, I don't mean like coarse. I mean, it's really difficult to play on. There are bouncy spots and flat spots and there are places that aren't exactly flat, apparently. This is clearly, this game clearly is a showpiece. And I'm sure that everyone in soccer wants this game to be great. They want this game to not just the atmosphere to look great on TV, but they want the, the level of play to be great. Is that a concern? I think it's an excuse. Okay. I think it's a, I think it's a, set, a set up for an excuse and a loss. I think it's something they can hang their hat on and say, you know what, we lost the game because the field was in bad condition. Hey, listen, uh, Montreal Impact have not played an Olympic stadium, so it's going to be, if it's going to be bad, it'll be bad for both teams. And both I was, I'm thinking... Highly skilled players and and if they suffer, both teams will suffer. And I, and that's what I'm thinking of, though, is is because people who love soccer want this game to look great in the stands, but also on the field. From a fan's perspective, from someone like you who is a diehard soccer supporter, are you concerned the game may lose something if the field isn't great? No. I don't think it will lose anything. I think the atmosphere will take over either the lack of quality on the, or, or the marginalization of the game as far as quality is concerned. Uh, I think the biggest focus will be on support and the atmosphere. I mean, my last game when I played for Montreal Manique at the Big O, we had uh, 57,000 when we had a playoff game against the New York Cosmos with Franz Beckenbauer and that whole crowd. Uh, in the field back then where the Expos played, it was the worst field you'd ever seen in your entire life. And then we played our full season on that. Probably so the I same turf they're using the, tonight. <laughs> well, actually, the turf, I'm, I'm just watching it right now, it looks not too bad at all. So 30-odd years ago, it was a heck of a lot worse than what that was. Good players adapt to whatever the, the conditions of the field are. They really do. And uh, and I think guys like Javinko and Piatti, they're going to adapt quite nicely to it. And, uh, and I think you'll see a very good, high-quality game played there with a great atmosphere. And uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure you actually are just now healing from some of those rug burns from that last game with the Manique in Montreal. That's uh, with that field they had. John McGrain, always appreciate you joining me and taking the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Enjoy the game. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, good luck to TFC. That is uh, John McGrain, Hall of Famer. John McGrain, formerly of the uh, NASL, played with Beckenbauer and Pele and uh, all those guys. Played for Canada's 1976 Olympic team in Montreal. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML.
Hopefully, we are going to find out the name of the new Las Vegas NHL expansion team. They've said it's an 8.30 announcement, but again, 8.30, you know, 8.30, 9.30. Did Elvis ever actually come on stage in Vegas right when he said he was going to? I doubt it. Anyway, if we do find out in the next 25 minutes or so what the name of the team is, we will let you know for sure. In the meantime, there have been a million questions about the idea of planting an expansion team, an NHL expansion team in Las Vegas at all. Evan knows we have had more than enough questions and problems with the other team that the NHL has in the desert now with reason, but the Arizona slash Phoenix Coyotes have been a mess enough that they almost moved to Hamilton. You'll remember that, right? All that stuff about Jim Balsillie and the team trying to move here. It has not been smooth sailing with hockey in the desert. So is this one going to work? Well, tried to find someone, tried to think, okay, who do we know who could actually speak to this from an actual point of beyond just guessing? Who has actually, is there anyone we know who has ever played hockey in Las Vegas? The answer, yes, Ryan Christie is a retired player now who not only won an Allen Cup with the Dundas Real McCoys, played there for many years, was a star on that team, but spent a year in the ECHL playing for the Las Vegas Wranglers back in 2003-2004. He joins me now. Ryan, thanks for doing this. Thank you. So uh, your first reaction, when you heard that they were going to be putting an NHL team in Vegas, your first reaction was good idea or Well, when I first heard it, I think I was more of the ooh, but because uh, it's been it's been a long time coming that they've been talking about it. They've talked about it for a long time. Like my first year playing pro was uh, nineteen eighty or ninety eight, ninety nine, and and there was a team in the IHL, the uh, the Thunder back then, and that was the first time I ever went to Vegas actually. And I'm thinking, oh my God, there's no way that you can put a team in in this city, and you hear horror stories about guys. Back then, getting their paycheck and going straight to a casino and 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 blowing it or or doing whatever they did and uh, but I think the game has changed so much now that guys are more focused on fitness, they're more focused on their health and their commitment and and uh, I think there's just a a better uh, understanding of what you need to do to play in the NHL and it's everyone's dream, like everyone says, and guys are. Uh, are more committed now than they were in the past. So I think, I think it'll work. It does suggest though, Ryan, that what you're talking about, about the changes, it's not just that the game of hockey and the businesses of hockey has changed, but would I be right in thinking if you were a general manager of the Los, of the Las Vegas team, it would, it would probably affect to some degree the players that you're going to draft, sign and trade for. You're going to want to make sure that you have guys with character as opposed to just a loose cannon who's going to get swept up by everything. Absolutely. Uh, it can be a place that you, uh, you get lost in and, and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a real fun place to play. And, but that being said, I think that most guys in the NHL are, they're there for a reason and, and they've done what they've had to do to get there. And they, they've got, uh, the right head on their shoulders at this point in time. I, I don't think I could say that 15, 20 years ago, but, I think now nowadays, 
Yeah, for sure. When you were when you were playing there, you were living obviously in town. Where do most? I mean, if you go down for a weekend, if someone takes a weekend in Vegas, we know they stay on the strip and they're right in the middle of everything. When you're living down there, the players, where were they living, and how often did they actually find themselves in the middle of everything? Well, if you want to be there, you can be because Las Vegas isn't a big place. It's a nice place. It's clean. Uh, I loved it. And the weather's great. It's beautiful. There's mountains. There's desert. There, there's a little bit of everything. There's no bugs. Um, it's uh, but we we live six miles from uh, say ten kilometers from the uh, the Palms Casino. We're right on Flamingo. Same same road. So if you wanted to, you could find trouble pretty easily. Absolutely. Did without naming you names. Sure, sure. Now, without naming names, were there guys on your team that you looked at sometimes and went, "Oh man, that guy's not going to make it." <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of good stories. That, uh, <laughs> I can't tell you right now, but there's there's a couple of locker rooms I've called. <laughs> Well, and it's not just, you know, whether they want to get into something. I mean, the the biggest fear, I think, for any pro sports team and what's really kept pro sports out of Vegas all along is the perception or the fear that there would be a connection between a player and an official or a team and gambling. And was that ever an issue when you were down there? Did the team ever say, listen, for, for credibility to keep us out of trouble, please, no gambling? No, they never said that. Actually, my... My general manager, coach and general manager was Glenn Goldson, who is uh, who's coaching Calgary now. And oh. he was amazing. He says, you know what, guys, there's a time for fun and there's a time for being serious. And uh, when it's time for fun, go and have fun. And But uh, we expect you to, to come to the rink and, and um, take care of yourselves like a professional. And, and uh, yeah, so as long as – I guess back then was a little different too. If you could – if you could play and, and work, then you uh, it was accepted then. I don't think it's accepted now. I looked up the numbers on Hockey DB uh, before I came on here just to have some idea. And you guys actually drew for uh, ECHL, you drew about 5,000 a game that year. So it wasn't like nobody was in the arena. But tell me about the the fan base. Because this is the third thing. I mean, there's the there's the issue of the players possibly getting in trouble that's been a concern. There's the issue of gambling that's been a concern. And the third one is, are there going to be people in Las Vegas who are clamoring for a hockey team? What do you think about that one? Well, if you look at our numbers, I mean, there were, I think we averaged 5,000, a little over 5,000 a game. But our, our arena held under seven, I think. So it was jammed. Like, it felt like there were... 20,000 people in the stands when you're there playing because there wasn't a whole lot of empty seats. And I think that, and don't forget, this is like double-A baseball. Like, this is the East Coast League. It wasn't the American League. It wasn't the NHL. It was uh, it was East Coast League. So, like, it wasn't the best league in the world, and nobody had really heard of it, especially out there. And I think that you have so many people, now that they've made such a hype about it, and I think that they've also brought on um, like basketball is really trying to get in there too, and there's a there's a ton of basketball fans in the states, but I think there's tons of hockey fans that are going into Vegas every single day. That they'll uh, they'll get people to come to their games. Do you think guys will in hockey? And you've played on a lot of teams in a lot of leagues. Do you think guys would want to play for the Vegas team? I think so. Um, maybe initially they might be. A, um, a little skeptical, thinking, "Oh my God, I don't know if I can 
go down there and and control myself and um but i think once you get there the strip gets old like you it's a place to take after a little while it was a place to take people who visited and you're going to get more people visiting that's for sure than uh than say if you're playing in a in a, a different place you're not as many people coming to columbus as vegas is what you're saying no yeah maybe not <laughs> but it it was uh, it was fun, you know. There's a lot of people that that didn't come to. It's also pretty accessible. So I was playing in say Kalamazoo. It's 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 a drive. It was it was easier to get to Las Vegas than it was to drive to Michigan and and see me play there. So. I mean, it it really it suggests that I mean it sounds like you're thinking this could actually work. I think so. I, and I also think that it's. Uh, it's a good thing for for the player. Um, there's guys that are that are maybe fourth line players right now or bubble players on on an NHL roster. They could get scooped up in this uh, in the expansion draft or maybe traded or, or whatever. And now they've got a, a legitimate role in, on this team. Or come out of retirement and uh, you know show people around Vegas. Yeah, I'd be more of a uh, ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> well, now the the we hear that the final three names. By the way, I'll get your thought on this. The final three names, the names that they've actually taken trademarks out on, are the Desert Knights, the Silver Knights, or the Golden Knights. It's going to be one of those three. Which one do you like? Um, I think I like the Silver Knights. I like the Black Knights better than all of them. Yeah, the, there was an issue apparently with uh, trademark and stuff, and the army, and the they they have the Black Knights, and I mean the Black Knights to me doesn't that sound like a, a character out of a Monty Python movie? But anyway, that's uh, you know uh, we could have the knights that go nih. Um Yeah, I still like the Vegas Rat Pack too, just as a as an idea. Hey, uh, I appreciate this. You um, for people who don't know, you spent a lot of time after that playing for the Dundas Real McCoys. You got your number being hung from the rafters on December sixteenth. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I wasn't, uh, yeah, I was a little surprised. Uh, Donnie called me and, and said he wanted to do it. And Actually, I, I called him and asked him if he wanted to have lunch. Just I was, I was in town. And um, and so he came and, and that's what he said. He, he said he wanted to honor the number. And I said, oh, that'd be great. So, you, you and Rick Vive. <laughs> why don't we say me and Mark Juris? <laughs> oh, Juris is up there too. It's right, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, it's we'll um, you know what I I have a feeling that uh, that Ryan Christie may end up at a Las Vegas NHL game at some point if uh, when the team gets rolling down there I don't know it just kind of sounds like that may be something on one of your weekend plans. <laughs> I'll have to talk to some uh, some family members about that. <laughs> that Ryan Christie, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. That is uh, longtime Dundas Real McCoy Ryan Christie after he had his much more lucrative NHL or NHL uh, hockey playing career, which included a year in Las Vegas with the, what do they call them? With the Las Vegas Wranglers, that uh, well-known Las Vegas team. Wasn't that the name of the CFL team that was down there too? Wasn't it the Las Vegas Posse? Posse? I can't remember. There was Las... some Las Vegas Wranglers team that wasn't okay, hockey, on. I thought. While you, while now you... I'm going to actually look which, that up. Which name, well, which name do you like best, Luke? None of them. Boy, oh boy, this team is going to have a bad name no matter which of those three they choose. Las Vegas Posse, was. I was correct. It was the Las Vegas Posse. Yeah, there you go. Um, With Dennis Casey Parks <laughs> singing the national anthem before the first ever game that was a disaster. Uh, 
Black Knights would have been the best choice. Obviously, there was some copyright issues. Just Knights would have been fine. I don't know why that was never in the conversation. See, that actually makes some sense. The, the, the Vegas Knights. There, there was a rumor that the London Knights because they yes. are all powerful and all controlling have a copyright North America wide but that apparently is not true so i don't know why just plain knights was not in the conversation unless uh bill foley who seems a little just a little off he'll certainly be one of the more eccentric nhl owners um thought that he needed his team to be different from any other existing brand considering the knights are a pretty good brand at least up in canada but what about right, the look. <laughs> what happens in Vegas's stays in Vegas's? Well, see now, now we're just being ridiculous. Ah, that name would have been a little cumbersome, but you know, might have been fun. I, I will say this: the Vegas Elvises, because the Elva, <laughs> because now that I've actually looked, and we're not going to get an announcement for for at least another ten minutes, and because it is a press conference, I'm imagining we're probably not going to get a real announcement until about ten o'clock. Uh, the leaked logo is sharp. Very sharp. So they'll come in with a terrible name, but a gorgeous logo, and I would assume really pretty jerseys. So, you know, they got at least something going for them. Depending on the colors, and I, I again, I've seen the logo. It's a, um, for the, well, it is a, a Knight of the Round Tables helmet, basically, is the best way I would describe it. A medieval knight's helmet. But it's it's also very simple. It's not a, it's, it's not very a very. Simple, and uh, it's black and gold and silver. Yes. So, of course, we still don't know. The, the rumor is that it's going to be the Golden Knights, although it could be golden, it could be silver, it could, could be, be desert. desert. I mean, any of those still fit with the color scheme here. You know, I Ryan's position, Ryan Christie, who was talking, his his commentary, his thoughts on it is interesting because I'll be honest with you, I've been very skeptical about the Las Vegas idea for an NHL team for a variety of reasons. I'm less. I, I'm with him on one thing for sure. I I believe that NHL players today are very different from NHL players of 20 years ago. They are businessmen now. Their body is their business. They are looking after fitness. They're going to bed. There are very there are some, but there are very right. few NHL players who would find themselves in a heap of trouble. There are some for sure who might. But the, but the key is that there and we are know who some, those guys are. There are some who will, and 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 the fact is that you you talk to a hockey fan and say which player shouldn't go to Vegas, and they you probably have, all give the same answer. Yeah, and we can have five or six good. guys. Like the, no, but you know, so there's five or six guys that that the general manager of Vegas, when they dangle that guy in front of him in a trade, is going to say, "That's the last possible person I want to have on my team because I know what's going to happen." So as Ryan said, the one thing that may be more important for the general manager of the new Las Vegas team than for other teams is you better make sure that when you trade, draft, or sign as a free agent, the guy has character, that you believe that he can withstand the temptations that might come with that city. We will see. Yeah, and and another thing that, that you, you didn't really touch on there, but this, unlike previous expansion teams, Minnesota, Nashville, Columbus, and Atlanta, now Winnipeg, uh, this team's going to be pretty good. From from the start, the way the expansion draft is set up. Well, so you're shaking your head now. Like the the issue with those four teams when they started was goalies. 
that when you have names like Manny Fernandez and and Damian Rhodes, yeah, and, you might, you and might get Mark Andre Fleury in this one. Exactly. Like the the chances are good that they will have two goalies out of Mark Andre Fleury, Matt Murray, James Reimer, and Roberto Luongo, and that's two really good goalies to start with. And you can do a lot with good goaltending. How about the Viva Las Vegas? The Viva Las Vegas. That would have been okay. It sounds a lot more like a soccer team name because well, they they tend to play more fast and loose with the whole city name nickname thing. So the, the I think if 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 Las Vegas gets a soccer team, then they can they can name it that. We shall see. I don't, as you're right, I don't know if we're going to get it uh, in the next few minutes. We're hoping so. Um, in the meantime, let us. Uh, oh, and someone just uh, Mike just sent in a note. He says, "What about the Las Vegas Gamblers?" The I don't know whether it was the team or the NHL, but they made it very clear right off the bat they were steering way clear of any gambling references. It, it was the the league that said no, and that was a terrible idea. I, I understand the whole gambling is still a little bit weird, but that's that's Las Vegas, and you call it you don't call them something like ridiculous. But the Gamblers is great. The Twenty Ones was one that I saw, and I love that team name. Like they're gambling names, yes, but it's not like they're the Las Vegas. Please bet on us. How about the Las Vegas CSIs? And their whole their shirt would have been black with yellow police tape wrapped around it to you know because that's what other sh- what other show has ever used Las Vegas as a I don't know just, I'm trying I'm trying to help here uh, but it's you know it, it's um, we're gonna get the we're probably gonna get the Golden Knights and and they'll just and here's the funny part even though the London Knights or whoever didn't want it everyone's just gonna call them the Knights yeah that's what's gonna happen yeah, they're gonna I be mean, the Knights the name will be. I think it'll be the longest team name in the league. Look, the the, so the Toronto Blue Jays. Some people still, I mean, people still call them the Blue Jays, but a lot of people just go the Jays. Well, that'll happen. It'll be the Knights. I mean, nobody called them the Devil Rays, and that's why they're just the Rays. Nobody called them the Mighty Ducks. That's why they're just the Ducks. So we'll see. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred. AM nine hundred CHML.